Galatians 1, verses 10 through 24. For, I, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had sent me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorify God because of me. The word of the Lord. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and we're continuing our series through Galatians. Uh, before we dig in, a couple things. First, we had a, uh, an event last night that I just want to say thank you. We had a lot of people turn out. We had a trivia night last night. We had, a, I don't know, about 100 people in this room, and, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, prizes were given. People laughed, and it was a success. Um, so thank you for all of you who came out. Thank you for all of you who labored diligently to make that happen. Um, Trailhead students, our high school ministry raised about $1,600 last night. Um, all of that money is going toward helping those students go to New York this summer um, for a short-term mission. They're going to be working with a church in the city, basically going kind of neck deep into some city ministry. And so we're really excited to partner with our, our high school ministry and very thankful that you guys partner with us to, to help pull that event off. So thank you for helping make that a success. Today we have the privilege of celebrating um, some child dedications. It's a very important day. It's a day of celebration here at Trailhead. So I'm going to ask the parents to come on up um, who are having their children dedicated this morning. We do dedications here at Trailhead as a way of acknowledging the great gift that we have in our children. Um, You guys can just stand right up in front here. This is perfect. Yeah. Awesome. Front and center. (laughs) Good job. Um, Basically, what's going on here, I want to explain what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, essentially, what we're doing is, is these guys are coming together as parents to dedicate their, ch- their children to God, which is, in essence, them saying um, to God, these children are a gift from you to us. We were entrusted these children. We're, in fact, stewards of these kids um, to be raised for your glory and for their good. Uh, we also recognize that we are flawed parents that we are imperfect and that we're not going to be able to do it without you enabling us, God. And so they're coming to dedicate themselves to raising their children um, in light of the gospel. Proverbs 22.6 says, um, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, we all know that, that that's not a promise, but it is a fundamental principle, right? It's a fundamental principle in, in this. The shaping that we receive in our youth influences us for the rest of our lives. And we want the shaping um, to be intentional, gospel-centered. We want our kids to come to know who God is in such a way that they come to love Him. Because we're absolutely convinced that if our kids love God and they follow God, they will live fulfilled, successful, joyful lives, regardless of the challenges that come. And so we're dedicating our kids to God. We're dedicating our parents to God. And we as a community, as a church, are dedicating to walk alongside these families to love them, to serve them, to equip them, because um, parenting is not an easy job. (laughs) Never has been, and um, I have to think that it's even more challenging today. And and as these parents kind of come into this marketplace, this crazy marketplace of ideas and influences, they are seeking to ultimately um, shape their children's appetite for God, and, and that requires a community. And so we're also, as a church, dedicating ourselves to come alongside them um, and to aid them and to love them and to serve them as they raise their children. So that's kind of what's going on. That's, that's why we're doing it. I know some of you come from traditions where, where they practice um, baby baptism, um, and, and we don't do that here. 
and, and that's very simply because we believe baptism is a different milestone. Uh, it's a milestone for when the child exercises personal faith in Jesus and becomes a believer. So this is the milestone we're celebrating um, at, this, at the outset, okay? And so, um, all right, I want to introduce the families to you. We've got uh, Jake and Kara Garrett. You guys say hi to the Garretts. There you go. And this is Hazel June. Hi, Hazel. Hi. There, you get this because you're handsome. Um, all right, Jared and Amy Siebert, you guys say good morning to the Sieberts. And they are dedicating Grant Stephen. You bet. I want to introduce you to the Richards. This is Andrew and Jenna. You guys say good morning to the Richards. All right, and they are dedicating Hallie. Where's Hallie? There she is. I have to pause and look at the babies. It's been so long since I've had. All right, and this is James and Katie Lords. You guys say good morning to the Lords. And they are dedicating Silas. All right, parents, um, we're going to kind of do this together. Um, it's a kind of a relaxed liturgy. Parents, do you dedicate yourselves to the raising of your children in the light of the gospel? Um, making much of the gospel, pointing them to Jesus, helping your child discover that they both have a need and that that need is met in Jesus. If you do dedicate yourself in that way, say we do. Church, do you dedicate yourself to walking alongside these parents, loving these parents, serving these parents, being patient with these parents and their children? Um, If you do, say we do. Praise God. Pray with me over these families. Father God, um, I thank you for these parents, their love for you, and their love for their kids. And I know that all of that is a gift from you, that they love you because you first loved them, and that they have children because you and your grace have given us the great privilege of forming the tightest form of community, family, underneath our own roofs and experiencing your image by being parents and 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 caretakers and protectors and lovers. So, Father, I pray that you will bless these families with patience, with joy, with great love. I pray, Lord, that you will um, set these children apart for your glory and for their joy. I thank you for this church, this community that comes together and loves children and loves families. And I thank you that in the end, it's all from you and for you to your great name. Amen. You guys, thank you. I'll grab a a bag on your way out. Thanks, you guys. All right, you guys, we're going to continue in our sermon series. We're going to be looking this morning in the book of Galatians and um, kind of pick up where we left off last week. Last week, um, we took a look at the idea that that really um, Paul was having an are you kidding me moment? Every parent has had one of those, right? When you turn around, you look away from your child for a moment and you turn back and who knows what they've gotten into, right? It's one of those moments where you're like, are you kidding me, right? He had just planted the church. He had, he had invested himself in these people, poured out his life, his energy, his guts for them. Um, and he turns away and, and in Ephesians, or excuse me, Galatians 1, 6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul looks away for a moment and when he looks back, his spiritual kids are playing with the neighborhood predator. They're not just being embarrassing, man. They are going into incredibly dangerous territory. They are allowing predators to come into the church. They are hosting them and giving them influences. And here's the thing. Predators have one agenda, always have, always will. A predator's one agenda, very simply, is I will use you to make me feel good, and I don't care what it costs you. And there were people in this church that were essentially saying, we want followers, we want influence, we want reputation, we want to be important, so we're willing to even undermine your faith in Jesus to advance our ends. We're willing to to threaten you. the eternal message of the gospel so that we can temporarily feel important and inflated and influential. These predators wanted followers. 
And so what they were doing is coming in and essentially they were, first of all, distorting the gospel. What they were saying was, you need to believe in Jesus, right? They weren't completely coming in with a different gospel. They were distorting the gospel. They're like, you need to believe in Jesus. So Paul was right with that much, but you need to believe in Jesus and you need to obey the law. You, you, we, we're, this faith, man, Jesus was a Jew and he came out of Judaism. And, and so what you need to do is realize that your historic roots in Judaism, they come with ties, man. If you're going to believe in Jesus, you Gentiles, you not only need to believe in Jesus, you need to be circumcised. You need to obey the, the law, right? So you, so you need to measure up. You need to uh, adhere to these rules. They were distorting the gospel of grace and essentially making it a gospel in their own likeness, a gospel of their own religion. And what they were saying was, this is the true gospel. What Paul preached to you, that whole radical message of salvation by grace and grace alone, yeah, we're not going to go there, Right? We need rules. We need guardrails. We need to protect the. We need to protect things, right? You can't just tell people they're loved and then let them go free. You got to tell them how to live, right? You got to give them some rules, and so that's what God does. And if you want to obey God, you need to obey these rules. Now, here's the thing: in order to get the Galatians to trust them and follow them, they not only had to deliver a different message; they had to undermine the reputation of the original messenger. If they were going to get the Galatians to trust them and, and follow them. They had to get them to reject their love for and their trust in the Apostle Paul. And so what they did is they attacked Paul. After Paul left, they showed up and they started spreading semi-truths about Paul and some outright lies. And we don't know exactly what they said because we don't have transcripts of those conversations, but we can pick up from his letter what they were implying, right? What they were saying about Paul. And so some of the things that we're fairly confident that these false teachers were saying, first of all, is that he wasn't a real apostle. Paul didn't walk with Jesus. He didn't eat with Jesus. He wasn't one of the disciples, and we know that, right? Paul wasn't converted until Acts chapter 9. He became a believer in Jesus after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He doesn't, make up, he doesn't ever show up in the four Gospels that are accounts of Jesus' life. And, and so these guys are saying, look, you know, Paul, yeah, he, maybe he's an apostle, but if he's an apostle, he's a little A apostle. He's not a big A apostle. He's not, he's not an important apostle like the Jerusalem apostles, like Peter and John and James, the guys that walked with Jesus, right? They saw the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw him walk on water. They saw him feed the 5,000. They were with him. They were there at the crucifixion, right? This guy, man, he, it's all secondhand news to him. In fact, he had to go to these apostles to get taught the gospel. He had to go to the Jerusalem apostles, and these Jerusalem apostles are the ones that schooled him and taught him. And he obviously wasn't a very good student because he didn't get it right. He got some of it right, but not all of it. They would also impugn his character. We see little hints about that, that they were implying that he was potentially in, uh, insecure and manipulative and maybe really strong uh, when he was far away, but weak when he was up close. They mistook humility for weakness. And so they were attacking him so that... that here's the thing. They wanted to make themselves bigger. And, and, and one of the important ways that, that predators make themselves bigger is by making other people look smaller. So he tears, they tear the Apostle Paul down so that they gain more influence, right? So here's the thing. Paul is going to talk in the beginning of Galatians about himself. And in fact, this is the longest autobiographical section about Paul that we have in, in the New Testament. It's a fascinating insight into um, sections of his life that other parts of the Scripture are silent uh, about. But here's the thing. We don't just get an insight into his story here. We, we really get a profound insight, a powerful insight into what sets the gospel apart from religion. And that may be a new idea for some of you, but here's the thing. The gospel and religion are two very different things. And he knows this because that's actually his story. So as he shares his story, he is going to be sharing some profound insights into how the gospel is different. And here's the basic premise, you guys. Religion enslaves us by making us earn the approval of people. The gospel frees us to delight in the approval we already have in God. Fundamental difference. Religion enslaves us to earn approval from people. The gospel frees us to delight in the approval we already have in God. All right, take a look at verse 10. Verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? 
If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. All right, what, what Paul's doing in this verse is he's setting up a dichotomy uh, between pleasing man and pleasing God. What he's saying ultimately is this, you guys catch this. Everybody is motivated by a need for approval. Everybody. Everybody is motivated by a need for approval. The question is, whose approval will you be chasing? Whose opinion will drive your behavior? Will it be man's or will it be God's? Because you will be a servant. You will be a slave of whomever you are trying to please. When you give that person the authority and you say to them, I need to measure up, I need to gain your approval to feel good about myself, you are becoming a servant of that person. You are empowering them to be your judge and saying to them, my well-being rests in your hands. If you need someone's approval, you're empowering them over, you're asking them, what do I have to do to measure up? And so they'll tell you, sometimes with their words, more often um, it's more implied right? It's more of an implication. You kind of pick up what they want by how they behave and how, what they wear and, and, and maybe what, how they dress or the things that they say, right? So what they'll say in a thousand ways is, here are our expectations. And if you meet them, you're in. And if you don't, you're out. And even if you're in, there's always a threat of being put out. So you better work to meet our expectations and you better keep on working to meet them. Because just because you arrived once doesn't mean you get to stay. You need to keep working to earn our approval if you want to keep it. Here's the thing, you guys. We all struggle with this. We all struggle with this. We're all driven by a need for approval. Now, it manifests itself differently in different lives. Um, But you can see it all around you. I mean, you guys ever been to a high school lunchroom? I was a teacher for 17 years. Um, and a principal, and there's nothing weirder about than a high school lunchroom. You walk in, it's like all these different nation states, right? They all have their they all have their territories. They all have their boundaries. You know what I'm saying? And and when you're in those territories and those boundaries, you speak the language of those people. You follow the culture of those people. You wear the dress of those people. So you got the jocks and you got the cheerleaders and and you got all the you know the the nonconformists nonconforming in the same way over here, right? You've got all these nation states of people that ultimately are conforming in order to gain approval, right? It, it, it describes, I mean, this explains a lot of, of why we behave the way we do. When I was in high school, uh, this was in the 80s, um, I was on the football team and we used to do this weird thing, right? Um, kind of an 80s thing. We used to wear our shorts over our sweats, okay? If you watch 80s movies, you'll still occasionally see people do that. It used to drive our coach nuts. Coach was like, you guys are idiots. That's backwards, man. The whole reason that you have shorts and sweats is so that when you get hot, you can take the sweats off, right? But we didn't care what he thought. We weren't doing it for him. We were doing it for each other, honestly. We were doing it to fit in. There was that sense in, in which we wanted each other's approval, and this is just the way we did it. Peer pressure. Peer pressure is where a need for approval turns into a pressure to perform. My need for approval turns into my pressure to perform because I need you to approve of me. I have made you, in a sense, my master. And I have made myself your servant. And I need to perform so I can gain your acceptance. We want approval, so we work, we perform to get it. Now, here's the thing, you guys. There's, there's a wide spectrum. You might be one of those poor souls you want everyone's approval, and you know who you are, right? You're walking down the street. You're worried about what anybody thinks of you, right? You're concerned that everybody has a positive uh, vibe about you, right? You do what you don't like to impress people you don't know. You perform to earn approval from people you don't even like because you're just driven, right? You have this need to gain the approval of everyone around you. Now, if that's you, I don't want you to feel isolated in that right? You might be on a different end of the spectrum, but you're on the same spectrum as everyone else, right? You might be sitting here thinking, I don't care about anybody. I I don't need to gain anybody's approval. That's not my thing. Really? Nobody? There's not some inner circle of people that you want to be accepted into? 
There's not some person that you really want to validate you, to say that you are worthwhile, that you measure up. I don't buy it. I think all of us are driven by a general, deep need for approval. So for you, it might be a specific group or a specific person, maybe a person of influence or perceived importance. Maybe somebody who can help you get ahead or keep you from falling behind. Maybe someone who makes you feel good about you. But here's the thing. We all want approval. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, who doesn't want to be approved? Who doesn't want to be liked? Who doesn't want someone to say, you're worthwhile? You're valuable? The challenge is, when we turn our need for a good thing into a craving for an ultimate thing, right? My need for a good thing, I want to be approved of, into a craving for an ultimate thing, I'm looking for you to ultimately validate my existence. I'm looking for you to meet a need that only God can ultimately meet. It becomes very bad when we say, I am only okay when I get that approval. I'm only okay when I get that person's or that group's or, or, or those people's approval. Now, here's the thing, you guys. This is what religion is all about. When I'm making a distinction between religion and the gospel, religion is all about getting approval. What we do is we take our horizontal experience with people and we apply it to our vertical experience with God. In our horizontal experience with people, we know that when we do well, we get ahead. If you do better in school, you get better grades. If you work harder at your job, you make more money. If you invest more in your friendships, people become more fond and affectionate of you. And we take that horizontal experience and we apply it to our vertical experience with God and say, surely it is also the same with Him. When I perform more, when I work harder, when I make more sacrifices, when I, when I am more self-controlled, when I am more diligent, surely He is more pleased with me. Surely I have earned more of His approval. So in order to be accepted by God, we need to measure up. We need to fit in. We need to gain approval. We need to meet the measure. And then that need to be approved turns into a pressure to perform. And that pressure to perform is one of the most exhausting experiences of life. Because it's a treadmill that never stops and never arrives. You're standing in place, running, 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 never getting where you want to go and never able to slow down. Here's the thing, you guys. We, we, we are religious people by nature. And we love religion. Let's be honest. Here's the thing. Religious people love religion because when you live for the approval of others, you demand that others live for your approval. The more driven you are to meet other people's expectations, the more driven you are to make sure other people meet your expectations. The more you live and die by other people's approval, let's be honest, the more you make others live and die by yours. And when you conform to the approval pressure, you turn around and demand that others conform to you. That's the essence of religion. Look like me. Talk like me. Measure up like me. When we talk about the gospel plus, right? The Judaizers were saying the gospel plus circumcision. The gospel plus obeying the law. But different groups are going to define that plus in different ways. But essentially what they are going to say is if you're going to fit in around here, if you're going to be right with God... You better look like us and sound like us and don't do the things we don't do. And you better do the things we do like we do them. And a subtle superiority comes in where you feel like you're the ones that have it right. All those others, I don't know, maybe God kind of tolerates them, but we're the ones that have it right. See, what happens is we take this pressure for conformity in a religion, we sanctify it and say, you need to be like me if you want God to be pleased with you. So we add our behavioral expectations, our rules to the gospel. Believe in Jesus and obey me. 
Religion then builds a fence out of what is added to the gospel. All those things that we added to the gospel, we build into a fence. And everything that's inside the fence is inside my approval. And everything that dares to step outside of that fence is outside of my comfort zone and outside of my approval. Those who go out aren't approved. So here's the thing. Paul knows all about that kind of life because he actually comes from that kind of life. Nobody was more devoted to religion than Paul. And he's going to unpack that a little bit for us. Take a look at verses 11 and 12. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. In other words, I didn't make it up. Nobody else made it up. The gospel that we, we have is actually from God. It's a gift to us from God. So it doesn't really matter, right, who's preaching it because it comes from a single source. Verse 12, for I didn't receive it from any man. I wasn't taught it by people, nor was I taught it at all. I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to talk about this. This took place in a very specific situation on Paul's road to Damascus. We'll unpack that in a moment. It's Paul's conversion moment where Jesus actually appears to, to Paul reveals himself to Paul and, and um, challenges him and uh, some stuff like this. But here's the thing. It, it's, what he's saying is, it's the gospel. I didn't get it from Peter. I didn't get it from James. I didn't need to. Because this good news, this message of victory actually comes from God, and God's the one that delivered it to me. And here's the thing. What he's going to say is, look at my life. Look how radically I've changed If this was a message that a man made up, do you think it could have the radical change in my life that it did? Do you think it could do what it's going... And he's going to unpack this. So as you're following along, just pay attention to that. What kind of message could do for Paul what it did? Take a guy who was breathing threats, violent hatred, conceited, and driven for glory, and in a moment, break him into sweet humility and free him to serve God and the church. Take a look at verse 13. As we get a glimpse into pre-conversion Paul, verse 13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. All right, Paul was very well known. Um, He was called Saul at that period of time. That was his pre-conversion name, Saul. He was named after the first king of Israel who was this giant in the land, right? The Old Testament describes him as this guy who was head and shoulders above all the other guys, right? He was, he was impressive of stature, um, and he was named after this guy, and, uh, and I think in some ways was seeking to, to gain a reputation, an influence similar to it. During this period of time, Christianity was seen as a sect of, of Judaism. In fact, it wasn't even called Christianity yet. That name hadn't even been made up yet. It, they were called the followers of the way. And, and to the broader perspective, Christianity at that point was really like a subsection or a, a, something that was coming out of Judaism. And, and Paul, as a Pharisee, somebody who was thoroughly trained in Judaism and protective of the traditions of his people, was deeply offended by this new sect. Because this new sect said, this guy, Jesus is actually the Messiah, the anointed one of God who has come in to usher in the kingdom of God. Why is that so deeply offensive? Because Jesus died on a cross. The Old Testament says anyone who hangs on a cross is cursed. Paul's like, are you kidding me? You're telling me the Messiah of God died under the curse of God? That doesn't make any sense. In fact, it's blasphemous because you're actually worshiping him as if he was God. But he died on a cross under a curse. How could one who was cursed also be divine? Now, here's the thing, you guys. Jesus was cursed. We know that. What Paul didn't get was that he wasn't cursed because of his violation of the law. He was cursed because of our violation of the law. He didn't die because he was a transgressor. He died because he was a substitute for our transgressions. When Jesus came, he came as the hero of the story to live the life we should have lived. The perfect life of obedience to God, submission to God, responsive to to the leading of the Spirit. Every moment giving glory to God. He lived the perfect life we should have lived. And then he died a sinner's death, the death we deserve to die. He died the death of the ungodly. He died the death of the cursed because that's who we were as rebels and cosmic traitors against the God of the universe. So Jesus died under that curse 
for our sin as our substitute. And when he rose again to new life, it wasn't just so that he could come back to life. It was so that we could come back to life. It was an invitation for us into new life. Paul didn't get that. All Paul saw was the, 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 the lack of, of um, it was incongruous, this idea that he could be both Messiah and cursed. So what did he do? He went after the early church. He was zealously, passionately pursuing this sect that he thought was defaming his God and robbing Judaism of its distinctive features. So what did he do? He tried to intimidate them. He brought in peer pressure. He he basically brought in the, the pressures of religion. The pressures of religion said, you need to conform to be accepted. You need to be like me to be accepted. So he intimidated the Christians. He scared the Christians. He persecuted the Christians. And if necessary, he would kill the Christians. All in the name of God. Why? At the time, he would have told you that he was doing it because he was zealous for God, zealous for God's glory, zealous for for God's name, zealous to protect the truth, right? But he gives the real reason in verse 14. Take a look at verse 14. I was out violently trying to destroy the church, verse 14, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. See, Paul reveals his true motivations during that period of time. He wanted to advance among his peers. Paul was keenly aware of where he stood in comparison to everyone around him. Paul was keenly aware of what rung of the ladder he was on compared to where all of his peers were and where they expected him to be. And he was determined to be on top. This was a guy that despised losing. This was a guy that he would breathe murder if somebody did the victory dance over him. He would excel. And his way of excelling was in religion. His way of excelling was in Judaism. He was extremely zealous, right? You obey, I obey twice as much. You go to the temple, I go twice as often. You think you're zealous? I I kill people for God. It doesn't get much more zealous than that, right? And so he was gaining a reputation. He was gaining approval from the religious leaders that he respected and from the broader Jewish population. He was driven by approval for his deep need for respect. What's ironic is that he was claiming to be protecting the reputation of God when in reality he was more interested in advancing his own. He was winning the reputation race. He was gaining the approval You guys, this is what religion does. It sets up artificial rules, and then it says, look how well I keep them, and look how well you don't. I feel approved when I measure up, when I perform these behaviors or avoid these behaviors, when I exercise what I think is an acceptable level of self-control, when I can go through the day with having um, reduced the number of sins, whatever it is. We, We set these little bars, and we think if we reach them, somehow then... God's happier with us, and we can be happier with ourselves. See, this isn't a problem just with Judaism, you guys. It's a problem with the human heart. When I became a believer, I was just like Paul, only my religion was non-religion. I was raised um, in my early life as a Jehovah's Witness, and family fell apart, and and we left the witnesses, and we became this quasi-non-religious family. And by the time I got into high school, honestly, I despised it. I despised Christianity. I had been introduced to several streams of Christianity that I found hypocritical and repugnant. And so my religion was non-religion. But here's the thing, that didn't free me from my heart's need to be religious. I was religious in my non-religion. See, my religion required me to set the same kind of expectations to build the same kind of fences. The difference was in mine, you had to read the right kind of authors, right? So, you know, for, for Paul, it was like studying the Torah. For me, it was studying existential writers, right? For Paul, it was, it was being zealous for the law. For me, it was being zealous in pointing out the hypocritical, nonsensical behavior of people who claimed to be Christians. 
See, we had our rules. Read these books, think these thoughts, be like us. And when I became a believer in Christ when I was 17 years old, when God broke me and I came to faith in Jesus, I was excommunicated from the church of non-religion. Seriously. (laughs) I was not welcome back. I showed back up to my circle of friends and was like, hey, you guys, can I tell you about this? Can I share what's going on in my life? And they realized that I had become an apostate from the apostates, and I was put out. Why? Because I was now outside the circle of approval. And what happens when somebody steps outside of the circle of approval? You shun them. You reject them. You pressure them so that maybe they'll conform and come back. That's a religious inclination, a tribal inclination in which we are trying to gain the approval of others so that we feel good about ourselves, so that we can find our personal worth and well-being finally in others looking at us and saying, you measure up. It was quite humbling for me to go from making fun of Christians to actually being one. And I think it was probably the same for Paul. And when I say quite humbling, I don't say that with bitterness. I say it with joy because that was the very thing my heart needed to be set free. I needed to be knocked off my horse. I needed to be knocked out of the high place of my pride so that I could actually see the truth, so I could actually understand who God was and who I was. I needed to be knocked out of that place where I felt really good about myself and could look down on others. And here's the thing, so did Paul. Take a look at verses 15 through 17 as Paul kind of describes that moment for him. Verse 15 starts with but, right? So he's just been saying, I was, I was zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Man, I persecuted the church. Verse 15, but when he who had set me apart, that is God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. Pause. He's talking about a very specific moment in time. And it was the moment on the Damascus Road. So here's the deal. Paul was in Jerusalem persecuting the early church. And he was attacking them and he was gaining a reputation. And he went to the leaders of the people and he said, Can I have letters that give me authority to go back to my hometown, Damascus? And in Damascus, do the same thing. I want to go after the Christians there. So they gave him letters and were impressed by his zealousness, and and off he went to Damascus, having no idea what was in store for him on that road. So I'm gonna let's put the verses up on the screen. I want to take you to Acts chapter nine because this is the account of Paul's um, confrontation with Jesus. Remember, this is post resurrection. Jesus already died, been buried, and rose again. Verse chapter nine, verse one. But Saul pre-conversion, his, his original name, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, remember they weren't called Christians yet, they were just called the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Nice guy. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now Saul was bright enough to know that this was God. He said to him, who are you, Lord? And he said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. I love this passage. I absolutely love this account because I can relate to it. I mean, I haven't had Jesus come and strike me blind But I know what it is to have that sudden, jarring moment of clarity. That's what happened here. This blinding light, right? God is is a great author, right? Isn't he? He tells this incredible story called human history. 
And, and he loves things like irony. So he strikes him physically blind, even as he gives him spiritual sight. And then says, I'm going to leave you physically blind for a little while because I don't want you distracted by colors and moving things. In fact, I want you kind of humble. People are going to have to lead you around by the hand. And during this period of time, you're going to have to rethink who I am and who you are. And in that sudden moment of clarity, Paul was devastated and lifted up. He was devastated because in that moment, he realized everything he had done up to that point, all the glory he had worked for, all the approval he had sought to earn, all the accolades that he had hung on his shelf, everything he had worked for, labored for, had had striven for, that he based his entire worth on, was worthless. It was worthless. But Jesus offered him something way better. Not his record, but Jesus's. In that moment, he realized that God was coming to him in grace and basically saying to him, you are building a kingdom of sand and it's already crumbling under you, but I'm offering you a kingdom of glory. One you could never earn and never build, but I will give it to you as a gift in Christ. If you believe in Jesus, I will forgive you your trespasses and I will give you a new future and a new glory that is not yours, that you could never earn and never claim, but by grace, I will give to you. In that moment, everything in his life, everything that he had looked to to seem that made him important, everything that he thought earned him favor with God, all of it, he calls it in Philippians, a load of crap. Philippians 3.8, in a very similar passage where Paul is talking about his religious credentials. And and he's really going in, man. He's in Philippians. He's like, man, I was a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, circumcised on the eighth day. I was taught in the school of Gamaliel. Man, I have the religious resume. I could slide across the table. Everybody needed to respect me. But when I look at everything I was building now as a follower of Christ, I realize that it was all loss. I thought it was gain, but it was loss. What he was saying is that it was empty of glory. There's a Greek word, it's a great word, called kenodoxa. Doxa is this idea of weightiness, glory. Something that's glorious is weighty to us. And what he realized was that everything he was building up in his self-glory was kenodoxa, empty of glory. It only appeared to be weighty, but it was empty of substance. It was loss, not gain. In fact, he says, I look at everything that I've piled up to my name, and I consider it rubbish. The Greek word that he uses there is skubalon. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. It was, a, it was an offensive word. It was a word that meant dung, feces, crap. It was not a kind of word that you used in polite company. But it was the best word he could find to describe how he now felt about what he took so much pride in. His self-righteousness, his self-effort, his, his kingdom that was built to his glory and to his name. He looks at it and he says, this thing that I used to think gave me value and gave me worth, I now have perfect clarity on. It's crap. And I was insane. I was a crazy man building a kingdom of crap, thinking that it was a glorious kingdom that would last to my name. And God, by his grace, came in and struck me blind and gave me sight and allowed me to see that everything I was building was useless and worthless and would betray me in the end. And instead, I could turn and receive by grace as a gift, a glory, a weightiness, a righteousness I could never earn on my own a free gift that came because the Son of God, the Holy One, became a curse on that tree for me so that I could be made right. It was an offensive word because he now looks back and sees that all of that zeal he had was offensive. I love the contrast between these two sections when you look in in Galatians 1 here between verses 13 and 14 and verses 15 and 16. When you look in verses 13 and 14, it's all about I, I did this, I did that, I was zealous, I was advancing. You get to verses 15 and 16, take a look. But when he who had set me apart from before I was born 
He who called me by His grace, He was pleased to reveal His Son to me. It was God that set Paul apart before he was born. It was God that called him by grace. It was God that graciously revealed His Son to him so that Paul could really see Him, really see Him and believe in Him and be set free from his idolatrous addiction of the approval of people and stop striving to build a kingdom of glory to his own name and be freed to rest. See, religion is all about what we do for God. The gospel is all about what God has done for us. Religion is work, 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 and maybe you'll be approved. Religion is believe and rest in the one who worked for you the one who accomplished what you never could. All Paul needed to believe, all Paul needed to do was believe that Jesus died for him and rose again for him and he didn't have to earn what was freely given. He didn't have to make himself right. He didn't have to be his own savior. He didn't have to establish his own worth. He could rest in the God who was for him and done for him what he could not do for himself. God had given him a Savior and restored his worth. So what was the result? Take a look at the, uh, the next couple of verses. I love how the end of this twists. Chapter 16, and, um, verses 16 and 17. When this God, who did all these things for me, was pleased to reveal his Son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, he freed me to a purpose and a work, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those that were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia. <laughs> I disappeared for three years. I went to these backwater towns and I just told people about Jesus. They didn't know who I was and it didn't matter. I disappeared. I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who is, who is Peter, the apostle Peter. And I remained with him for 15 days. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that house. You know what I'm saying? The Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter coming together for the first time to discuss their experience of grace. Uh That would have been awesome. But I saw none other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And then what I'm writing to you before God, I don't lie. What's the whole point of this? The point is this, that that this guy who was so driven for the approval of people in power, this guy that was so driven to be a success, this guy that was so driven to have a name that was great, suddenly, dramatically, inexplicably was happy being completely unnoticed. This guy that was thought he was wired for the world stage was suddenly laboring in backwater towns full of joy simply because he loved Jesus and Jesus loved him. This guy that was driven by his need for approval, set free from his addiction to approval because he was no longer working for his approval from people. He was working from his approval in God. He stepped out of the limelight and spent three years rethinking his theology and laboring diligently, preaching the gospel in backwater towns where no one knew him and no one praised him. Try to explain that with a gospel made by men. Try to explain that kind of radical transformation without bringing in the very clear, dramatic power of God. This is evidence of His true faith and the actual work of the Spirit within Him, that He really rejected religion, that He stepped off the treadmill of trying to gain influence and approval. He was no longer laboring, 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 trying to earn what he could never get, trying to go where he could never go. He was resting in the one who earned for him. And he disappeared. He simply followed Jesus off the world stage and disappeared. Now, here's the thing. God had a purpose to make Jesus great in Paul. Paul entered into the world stage again, but only after he had made Paul a very different man. Remember Saul, the guy that was head and shoulders above everybody, right? The guy that was, everybody noticed that guy when he walked into the room. God changed his name from Saul to Paul. You know what Paul means? Little. Tiny. Diminutive. Like, this is Pebble Paul, right? The guy that used to be like so driven to be big and great and known. 
I'll make my greatness known through the littleness of Paul. I will make my strength known through the weakness of Paul. I will make my glory known through the brokenness and the lack of glory inherent in Paul. And at the end of the day, I'll get my glory and Paul will get the joy. That's the freedom of the gospel as opposed to the slavery of religion. Look at the way this plays out at the end of our section, verses 19 through 24. Sorry, verse 21. And then, I, and then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Again, we have very little information about um, his ministry during this period of time, verse 22. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea who were in Christ. They didn't know me by face. They had known me by reputation because I had persecuted the church and all that sort of stuff. But they didn't know who I was. They didn't even know, my, know me by face. They were only hearing it said that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that I once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. Catch that. They glorified God because of me. This is the guy who used to glorify himself in the name of God. Use the name of God to advance his own name. Make himself great. Who is now saying with great gratitude, great humility, great satisfaction, they didn't even know who I was. But they glorified God because of me. God got the glory. And I was disappearing. And I was okay with that. Because when you disappear in the gospel, you never disappear. Because your worth is not based on people's opinion of you. It is based on God's opinion. And you guys, when the God of the universe looks at you and says, I delight in you, you are my son, you are my daughter, you are worthwhile, you are beautiful, you are my man. When God looks at you and says that, do you really need people to come along and say it too? Do you really need the religious accolades when you have the reality of a God who is for you? What a beautiful twist to the human story. We used to try to rob God of his glory to build our kingdoms of crap, and he has looked at us in his mercy and said, I will give you my kingdom and my glory. If you will simply believe in me and trust in my finished work, I will forgive you your sin and I will give you what you could never earn righteousness, peace, forgiveness, glory, and a future. It doesn't come to the smartest or most accomplished. It doesn't come to the talented. It doesn't come to those who are able to make a big splash so everyone takes a look. He's saying, stop being enslaved to the approval of people and instead rest in the approval that I've given you in my son.